I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg is Professor Tess van der Merwe, who is an extraordinary professor and researcher in the Department of Endocrinology at the University of Pretoria, CEO of 11 Centers of Metabolic Medicine and Surgery of South Africa. She is the Africa Consultant for the International Association for the Study of Obesity. She is also the Chair of the South African Society for Obesity Metabolism and has served this organization for more than 25 years. She also serves on the scientific board of the International Federation for Surgical Obesity and currently her primary clinical commitment is in the field of bariatric and metabolic surgery for obese and diabetic patients. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to have you here and to learn more about the work that you do and, and the topic of obesity and particularly how it relates to women. I think in South Africa, it's particularly problematic. Um, I cringe every time I see the latest statistics coming out because it feels to me like every year we're losing another percentage point or more. But we can roughly say, just to generalize it for the listeners, that approximately two out of every three women in South Africa, regardless of whether we would be looking at the urban or the rural area, now suffers from overweight or obesity. And that places us at the fifth highest level in the world and the heaviest in sub-Saharan Africa. So we're really facing a daunting task. We're desperately trying to get to the bottom of what basic principles we can start to roll out to address this in a more productive way. So that would be on the side of primary health care. But then on the other side, we also have the cutting-edge medicine uh, at tertiary care level where you know that those patients who have tried and failed or is suffering from a very chronic disease and basically the only cure that we have for these people would be a form of metabolic surgery. Just to recap, obesity, according to the World Health Organization, is defined as either abnormal or excessive fat accumulation that presents a risk to health. And when we were talking about women being really predisposed in South Africa at two out of almost every three women is being diagnosed as either obese or overweight, it poses a number of risk factors in terms of related diseases such as chronic disease, diabetes, cardiovascular, and cancer. And according to the World Health Organization, they estimated that in 2016, more than 1.9 billion adults were obese. And as you said, we've got this massive percentage of, of women being diagnosed. In your opinion, why do you think that is? What are some of our, our risk factors? I think it's multifactorial. I, I like to, to separate them into the historical uh, because I think it is important. Uh, and then what is happening currently and what we are observing. Now, on my return from Sweden uh, in the early 1990s, and obviously we're in the 
privileged position of seeing exactly how obesity was treated in those uh, very advanced research countries. But I was horrified when I came back to South Africa at the quality of not only research, but also our perspective of what obesity was. We basically coined a term called healthy, especially black obesity, for decades on end at our university. And that just didn't add up to what I was seeing in the world where even young women were dying of hypertensive strokes because they were obese, overwhelming amounts of diabetes. And I, for the first time, started challenging this whole concept of just because you have a lower cholesterol, you will not die from obesity. So I think there was a massive historical disadvantage uh, in our perception that any of our women, especially in the rural areas, received the right information. They were not screened. They were not treated with the necessary compassion. And my research thesis, in fact, at that point in time, started looking at exactly at do we have insulin resistance at a higher level our black uh, uh, women, especially where we find extraordinary high levels of obesity. And I think it was a turning point for research in, in our country. What we found was that, in fact, that they had a very rapid deterioration of the pancreatic beta cell very early on in the course of obesity that led to diabetes. So that was the historical background and we had to kind of play catch up to correct the figures that were not reported over decades and decades in the most accurate and the most scientific way. Then on the other hand, we've got the current situation where a woman throughout their lifetime is exposed to a multitude of environmental and personal risk factors. First of all, they're more sensitive to obesity as they go into an ANARC and they start their the cycling, the ovarian cycling. Then they have added uh, risk of putting on too much weight, often in an uneducated manner during their pregnancies, which they find very difficult uh, to lose, and with every pregnancy, there's a little bit more that stays. Uh, and that is true for all of our women across all the racial groups. And then they become the nurturers of the household. So they're in contact with food day and night. They are ultimately responsible for making that the food gets into the house. And they very often do not have the basic knowledge to know the difference between what is acceptable to eat, what could be traditional and acceptable, and what is completely unacceptable. And then they have the added final risk in their, their journey through their life cycle where they go into menopause and they lose a large percentage of the estrogen and progesterone that would have been the mainstay to maintain their energy expenditure and they suddenly just become very obese and diabetic, hypertensive, sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, which is just rife in all our women in South Africa. So we have to look at where we've come from, how are we progressing, and what are we doing 
in each one of those categories to make things easier for our women. And the progress is there, but it has been slow. When I listen to all of the elements that you're talking about, especially the environmental ones, it seems like a lot of these factors could actually be preventive in terms of obesity, that if we had enough education or the right type of education about the types of, of food that you should be eating, the, the types of, of cholesterol levels that you should have, um, the types of uh, how healthy weight gain during pregnancy as well as, as weight loss, that how you are, uh, as you said, women are the nurturers in the family. They are responsible for the food that goes out on the table that, that everyone in the family consumes. But if we had the right education and knowledge, that a lot of obesity could be prevented. I think, again, we've got to discern between what we can do in terms of prevention and when do we have to accept that obesity has become a disease. In 1997, for the first time, uh, the World Health Organization classified obesity officially as a chronic disease. Now, that is important because that brings a certain status of scientific care to the subject matter. And that has been lagging behind in our country. But yes, prevention is the one element that we can take care of. But let's rather look at what has happened when you've been at a BMI 30 and above for more than three years. Basically, the regulatory mechanisms that you have in your brain no longer stands under the normal feedback control from the body. And the body starts to do an abnormal thing of storing your highest body weight as the correct body weight rather than progressively looking at how it can bring it down. So after three years or more of being at a BMI 30 and above, you are now in the inadmirable position where your, your hypothalamus, which is that little gland in your head that controls your body stat, is becoming like a runaway train. It does not respond adequately to any of the peripheral signals in from the body, whether that be from the liver or the gut uh, or the muscle or the fat tissue itself, and slowly but surely, the chronic process of disease uh, starts. Uh, and unfortunately, once you have reached that stage, to exercise any form of preventative medicine is basically been proven to be unsuccessful. It is at that point where you urgently have to seek help. And the only really successful tool that we've got to help super morbidly and morbidly obese patients, but in other words, those patients at a BMI 40 and above is with the metabolic surgeries, which is a laparoscopic surgery. But herein lies our problem. We have had a mismatch in South Africa what we have been practicing in private is being taught at our tertiary institutions in terms of care so that some of that care can go to our public patients as well. And although we are currently in South Africa, especially at the waterfalls, recognized as one of the top international centers in the world, we have not yet managed to take that into the training arena of our universities. And that has to happen now. 
if you ask me today, what is the legacy that I want to leave behind? It's only one thing. You have to, at some point, allow the field of obesity to become much larger than the person itself. And for that, we have to create a fellowship in obesity medicine. And there's often a huge debate raging about should this be in the surgery department, should this be in the internal medicine department. The answer is neither. It must be the subject matter of obesity medicine because it's such a multifactorial disease. You have to deal with a dietitian. You have to deal with a psychologist. You have to bring in the surgeon at the right time. You have to have an endocrinologist that takes the lead. So what we need in this country as a matter of urgency is to establish a satellite campus for obesity medicine so that we can take 15 years of groundwork that has been established uh, in the centers of excellence and take those teaching protocols and give the ownership to our universities, then can, you can start with saying, how are we going to fund a fellowship? What are we going to get money? That would be the only process by which we will be able take us into the public arena so that there is a fair distribution of care across all the societal groups. Thanks for shedding light on some of the ideal developments that you want to see as the the trajectory that establishing the field of obesity medicine will do and the gains it would take in uh, developing these fellowships. You've been instrumental in setting up the 11 centers of metabolic medicine surgery in South Africa as centers of excellence. Can you tell us more about the initiative and what the centers aim to achieve? They are located throughout the country. So this all dates back uh, to the early 2000s. And I was approached by the then CEO of Netcare, Ducky Shevel, a very visionary man, uh, who realized that unless we set up centers of excellence of care for obesity management, we're basically going to be left behind compared to the the rest of the world. And the minute Netcare came into the picture, other two private groups came into the picture as well, Life uh, Medic Clinic, and they basically gave me a mandate. At that time, I was still an associate professor at the University of Witwatersrand. It was a, a very cool choice for me because I'm an academic at heart, but I realized that in order to achieve what we wanted to achieve for this country, I would have to make a choice. Uh, Life is a series of choices. That wasn't a very easy choice, but I knew that I had to take the long road to get back to the road of academia uh, and decent protocols and education for obesity. So we were very grateful. They basically gave, here's the capital, get the centers up and running, and let's see how quickly we can roll this out throughout the country. So we approached it basically in three phases. Uh, it was uh, the first five years were very, very tough because there was no medical aid reimbursement at that stage. And I literally sat in boardroom after boardroom after boardroom trying to convince the medical aids 
that we were not busy with a cosmetic procedure, that we were dealing with a disease. Discovery was the first to move on this. They allowed us a pilot study of 100 patients. Unfortunately for us, they stopped it uh, at 70 patients because the outcomes were so overwhelming in favor of not only the health return, but the economic health return that they were beginning to see. And that then allowed us to roll it out into a second five-year phase. But nevertheless, we have over the last 10 years performed close on 6,000 surgeries in the country with a mortality rate of 0.1%. It is one of the best in the world. We managed to establish a massive database at our particular unit that carries in excess of 400 variables And for me, the the, the next stage would now be uh, to say we need more capital. We need definitely need capital in the public arena. We have to establish a more formalized fellowship. And that then will be, for me, the final stage of what we have been working uh, towards over the last 15 years where you say, well, we've done all the groundwork. Uh, there is the, the formula that you can follow. Now let's change it into formal education so that everybody can benefit from it. You've certainly made significant progress in a relatively short space of time. And you've also drawn, both in in this conversation and, and earlier, comparisons between private sector and public sector. And the reality is that 85% of our population is serviced by the public sector. And when we look at 6,000 surgeries in the private sector, that is bears very little in terms of the numbers of people that are, are suffering from obesity in the public sector, particularly women. It is astonishingly small. Uh, the, the worldwide take on obesity surgery, even as we look at it today, is still only 4%. Now, there are a couple of, of reasons for that. I think the one is there is a cost driver. It is expensive surgery. But I think what is far more important is the educational aspect uh, amongst the, the public at large. People still think that you can look at this as a lifestyle disease and they find it very difficult to comprehend how we can do a surgery on the stomach and the gut and deal with the hormonal consequences that goes to the brain. These are difficult concepts for people to internalize and digest. But I think there's also a fear element and we really have to convince the patients in especially the public sector, that this is such a safe surgery to do and that you stand to benefit so much. About 40% of the patients that we do in in the project is purely for diabetes and the remission is anything from 85 to 99% remission rate, depending on the kind of surgical procedure that we embark on. Now, that is more than what you can ever achieve with medical treatment. And we have to weigh up the risks and the benefits all the time, but we have to clarify it for the public and explain to them that you're actually going to have a hormonal surgery. 
And again, we're not the only country battling with putting across that that concept. I try to say to the patients, all you have to understand is, is that we have to go and make an anatomical change to get a physiological consequences. And if you look at medicine carefully, there have been these kinds of operations in the field of endocrinology. But the concept in the context of obesity, which has been repetitively labeled as a lifestyle disease rather than a disease, has to come across now. And that is where education is going to become very important. Prof. Endemova, you've really explained the importance of the surgery and how it becomes a, a sustainability factor that people can go into significant remission on their diseases. Earlier, you spoke about BMI levels, and you mentioned that if, for instance, you were on a BMI of 30 and you'd had that, you'd been on that level for three years, that you are more predisposed and and more at risk. Can you just take us through how one can do a calculation of their BMI? Basically, your weight divided by your height squared, but I always I just go to the SASA website because we've got an automatic calculator there. Now, obviously, the, the threshold for diabetics is much, much lower than it is for just ordinary patients suffering with obesity because we really want them early. We don't want them to go to a BMI of 40. There are, of course, three... Um, a variety of um, surgical procedures. They range from anything from a sleeve to a gastric bypass to a, uh, a sari to a duodenal switch. I don't want to go into the technicality of that. But the art of this particular field of medicine is to match up the right procedural type with the right particular clinical profile. And for that, you need to be skilled for all the surgical types. Now, that is the one thing that we are still lacking in this country. Uh, the most advanced of these surgeries are only performed at our center, at the Waterfall City Hospital. It takes quite a significant expertise, surgical skills, and a very strong team uh, to take uh, the patients through these more advanced procedures in a successful manner. But my dream would be that we will eventually get to the stage where our youngsters that are coming through the lines and you can still develop those very high level of technical skills will be able to take over from us at some point in time and that that would become almost like a routine operation for them rather than the more, as they always describe it, the big operation. And looking for a moment at the skill set and as we are a gender-based program, we always look for opportunity spaces where, where women are present or environments where women could be moving into. In view of the different positions you've you've held and your exposure in the field, what would you say are, are the attractive points of coming into the field? I think there's one thing that I really would like to 
uh, utilized in a far more comprehensive manner, and that is the scope uh, obesity training program that we've established through the World Obesity. Initially, when we started off with World Obesity, these were scope schools that, in other words, you would have to travel to London. That involved quite a significant cost factor, but over the last five years, this has become an online uh, course that you can complete, and it runs through various chapters. So there is opportunity for even the medical practitioner sitting in in a rural field, not quite knowing what the next thing or the next right thing to do would be to go through these scope courses just to get the basics in place. You can then advance to what we call the executive scope uh, online course. That will take you through a series of more uh, intricate uh, training processes. I also feel that we we do need to train at pre-graduate level and start now. Currently, the obesity curricula that we have running in the tertiary care hospitals are so scanty. You may be talking about one or two lectures. You qualify as a general practitioner, and now you have to rely on the one or two or three scanty little lectures that you had, maybe somewhere in your fifth year that you can't even remember the detail of, to now deal with basically a chronic disease that is a pandemic. And for me, that is just not good enough. We've got to urgently review our curriculum for our pre-graduates. We have the curriculum for the post-graduates, but what's the point? if we don't get correct referrals from our our basic feet on the floor, your GP, they need to understand when to refer. And we haven't got that right. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band, also available on DSTV channel 802. Today, we're talking to Professor Tess van der Merwe, who is an extraordinary professor and researcher in the Department of Endocrinology at the University of Pretoria and CEO of 11 Centers of Metabolic Medicine and Surgery of South Africa. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of our show, Prof. Endemova spoke about the fact that two out of every three women in South Africa is classed as either obese or suffering from being overweight. We also spoke about the evolution of obesity as a chronic disease and for attitudes to change from a traditional view of it being a, a lifestyle consideration. And we spoke about the development of and evolution of obesity medicine as a discipline within its own right. Prof. Vandermeer, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So could you please tell us, in your opinion, what have been some of your key drivers? There are basically just three words, and that is focus, focus, and focus. I think that in the the, the world that we live in today, it's very easy to become distracted by both your successes and your failures. 
finding that the biggest problem that we have amongst our youngsters is that they just cannot keep their focus. You have to have a picture in your head of what you want to achieve. And then you've got to surround yourself with enough strong people to do the day-to-day work for you so that you can focus on the bigger picture all the time. For me, uh, one of the watershed time periods in my own life was when I was training in Sweden. And I will never forget the first time I walked into my PhD supervisor's office and I went there with a long list of questions. And he looked at the list and he said, please put away that list. The only lesson that you need to learn for today is that you have to learn to just tell the story. Nothing more, nothing less. The day when you learn that story is the day when you will understand what you're supposed to do. And at first I was quite taken aback. Um, And then when I went home and I thought about these incredibly wise words, I realized that what it basically meant is that you have to, at a very, very early stage, filter out what is important and what you need to bring into your career that can be meaningful and what you need to let go of very, very quickly. In the the 1980s, 1990s, and the early 2000s, I think gender discrimination was massive at our universities. It was almost to the point of being toxic. So when I ended up in Sweden and I ended up in an ambiance where there was absolutely no gender discrimination, I for the first time realized how much our women in our country had been suffering under gender discrimination because there is a total gender blindness in Sweden. And it was absolutely liberating. And that is what I would really like for our young women, to have an equal and a very fair chance where they are in an environment where they are accommodated for who they are. They will always be the child bearers. We have to make it easier. We've got to look at shared posts at at a registrar level far more often. You cannot tell a woman that if you want to have children, you are not fit for this career. And I have heard that so often. Even last year, there was a young endocrinologist at one of our tertiary care hospitals that called me in absolute desperation that was literally being victimized on a daily basis uh, because of the, the fact that she needed a little bit more time off to spend with her sick child. And I thought to myself, how different would it have been for her if there was a a strong, positive childcare right there in the hospital environment where the employer would have taken care uh, of an environment where she could have gone to see her child, even if it was once during the day. And how soothing that would have been. Instead, what she got was 
ultimate victimization from her superior about the fact that she had a child. Now, that kind of nonsense must stop in this country. And it's still happening, even in the year 2019. And I will always viciously oppose that. Such an important thing that you said, and it it really troubles me. You know, we we have these conversations with with a lot of women that their work environments do not accommodate childcare facilities. Uh, You spoke about Sweden, and they are a completely egalitarian society. And I I love to look at the lessons that we can adopt and apply from, from the Nordics into South Africa, which will almost reframe the responsibilities and and help ease the burden that mothers have to bear continuously uh, on being able to distribute some of the, let's say, the unpaid labor that still needs to to happen to make the world go around. We've got to get to a point of maturity, Amalaya. We, We are still a very immature society. I'll give you an example. I have a Two doctors that I worked with at Göteborg University, husband and wife team, both uh, superb, the one an endocrinologist, the one a surgeon. And there would be a call roster in place for both parents to go off if the child was sick. It's basically maturity. Nobody asked any questions because you know that maybe next week you will be doing that sick child called asked for somebody else again. And it was astonishing to see how this was just a part of the lifestyle, how they just accepted it, how nobody asked questions about it anymore. Uh, and I just wish we could get to that point of gender maturity in this country where we just accept that Women will always be the the the, 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 the gender that, that has to be the child. They they have to be given a little bit of leeway. They have to be given more support to do what they do. And we have to viciously oppose this ongoing gender discrimination that is taking place, especially in our tertiary care hospitals, still on a on a yearly basis. Yes, it's twenty twenty now. Um, and like you say, unfortunately, the incidences of gender discrimination, victimization are, are still ongoing. And you're, you're talking about a tertiary institution where one would expect it to be less. We've all got different sectors, um, whether it is in the communication sector, the corporate world, where it's certainly more prevalent. I think it's as right in the corporate world as it is in the tertiary facilities. Um, that is merely my exposure. But I, I hear the way male doctors talk about female doctors. They will still often, in the corridors, you will hear them saying that a female doctor is not on the premises because she's a woman. Like, you know, they're insinuating that she is probably sitting at the night salon, and that kind of of subtle digging goes on in the private hospitals as well. It is not just at our tertiary care facilities, and I think it is a complete mindset that we need to change in this country. 
nobody asks a question when Anita just goes off on a Wednesday afternoon to go and play golf. But if a woman had to take off on a Thursday afternoon because she wanted to go and do her hair, it is an issue. We have connotations. We've got preconceived ideas about what is acceptable in our worlds, in our gender worlds, and what is not acceptable in our gender worlds. And that's why I'm saying, Amalaya, we've got a long way to go in terms of how we think, small things, big things, our daily perception, our daily maturity about what comes out your mouth. Why did you say that? What was the origin of that thought in the first place? And I think we we have to keep on talking about this uh, out in the open and make men aware of it. And I do that often. If I hear that kind of remark in the corridor, uh, I will correct that with my male counterparts. And I think that is where you've got to have a very, very strong moral compass. It's always a very lonely road that you walk. You're going to get to that point where no matter how good the infrastructure is that you've surrounded yourself with and how competent the world is that you have surrounded yourself with, there will be those times where you've got to stand up for what is right and what is wrong in a strong manner. And you have to listen to your inner little voice and you've got to keep your moral compass very, very strong and not drift into the gray areas that we so like to explore. You've highlighted the fact that gender inequality is still rife across the spectrum. Lastly, as we close the conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to young women who are listening to the show? I think our young people are living in the most unbelievable time. They honestly have the world at their feet. They have the ability to do so much with technology. They have the ability to do so much with online learning. They have the ability to cross this gender inequality. They have the ability to be strong. They have the ability to be themselves. And if I can teach my young students one thing, every day I always say, work out who you are and then be true to yourself right through your life. That is what you've got to aim for. Tell the story. Tell the story. <laughs> You're so right. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on air today and we wish you all the very best in terms of the endeavours that you're doing on establishing obesity medicine and the work that you're doing in the various hospitals. Thank you so much for this invitation. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Tess van der Merwe, who is an extraordinary professor and researcher in the Department of Endocrinology at the University of Pretoria and CEO of the 11 Centers of Metabolic Medicine and Surgery of South Africa.